0: Well, hello, Nancy. Hi, doctor. How's the osteoporosis medicine I prescribed working for you? Well, it's fine, doctor.
1: But, you know, I saw this commercial for something called Avista, raloxifene hydrochloride.
0: Yes, Avista. It's prescription only, and it's the one medicine that treats osteoporosis and reduces the risk of invasive breast cancer in postmenopausal women with osteoporosis. It's important to note, though, that Avista does not treat breast cancer, prevent its return, or reduce the risk of all forms of breast cancer.
1: Am I at risk for invasive breast cancer? I don't have a family history.
0: Well, family history is important, but there are other risk factors that I need to take into consideration, including your advancing age and personal history. And based on my risk assessment, you may be at risk. So you think Avista is right for me? Well, individual results may vary, but I think for you the benefits of Avista would outweigh the potential risks. Let's switch you today. Well, thank you, Doctor. I'm glad I asked about it. (laughs) No problem. Avista increases the risk of blood clots. should not be used by women who have or have had blood clots in the legs, lungs, or eyes. Avista may increase the risk of dying from stroke in women at high risk for heart disease or stroke. Talk to your doctor about all your medical conditions. Seek care immediately if you have leg pain or warmth, swelling of the legs, hands or feet, chest pain, shortness of breath, or a sudden vision change. Do not use Avista if you are pregnant, nursing, or may become pregnant, as it may cause fetal harm. Women with liver or kidney disease should use Avista with caution. Avista should not be taken with estrogens. Side effects may include hot flashes, leg cramps, and swelling. For more information about Avista, contact your Lily sales representative, visit www.avista.com, see our ad in Good Housekeeping, or call 1-888-44-AVISTA. You're listening to ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Advances in Women's Health. Your host is Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. Assistant Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at Northwestern University Medical School, the Feinberg School of Medicine.
2: The physiological changes that occur during pregnancy make many medical conditions a challenge to healthcare providers in both obstetrics and general medicine. Can a team approach be the answer to management of these pregnant women with significant medical diagnoses? And when should the care of these medically challenged patients begin? Before or after pregnancy has occurred? To help answer these questions is Dr. Karen Rosine Montella, Professor of Medicine and Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Women and Infants Hospital at Brown University Medical School in Rhode Island. She's the principal author on the second edition of The Medical Care of the Pregnant Patient. Welcome, Dr. Racine Montella. Thank you. When you're thinking about the medical care of a pregnant patient, what makes the pregnant patient special when a medical diagnosis is involved?
1: Very special because there's two people involved. There's both the mother and the baby. And in trying to take care of both, people often feel like there's a big dichotomy between taking care of the mother and taking care of the baby. So it makes many, many physicians more hesitant to care for people out of respect for an assumed dichotomy. Really, it's very important just for a healthy mother to have a healthy baby. All of the perfusion and oxygenation of that fetus comes from the mother. So keeping the mother and the baby healthy is almost always one and the same.
2: What are some of the medical conditions that you were particularly concerned about when you're thinking of a pregnant patient?
1: In terms of maternal mortality in in our country, so in the developed nations, most likely causes are now medical, and they would be pulmonary embolism, thrombosis and, and heart disease. So either of those, or the risk for either of those, would precipitate very careful counseling of a pregnant patient. The other is, because we can do so much about it, preconception is diabetes, which is very prevalent.
2: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Well, and you know, I think preconception being something I'd like to chat a little bit about, that the diabetic is the perfect preconception patient to see someone before they get pregnant because it makes such a big impact on their pregnancy.
1: Absolutely, Lisa, and thank you for pointing it out. We've known for years, I have a 26-year-old son, and I was a control for the study that taught us that glucose is a teratogen so if a woman's blood sugar is high before she's pregnant or at the time of conception her risk of congenital anomalies is significantly higher so it's very very important for in particular any primary care physicians so mostly internists, family physicians nurse practitioners anybody endocrinologist anybody who's taking care of women of reproductive age to talk to them about control of blood sugar prior to conception because obstetricians often don't see these patients until after the time when glucose acts as a teratogen, after organogenesis is complete.
2: Absolutely. And in the book, you, you talk about that obesity is one of the leading causes of adverse pregnancy outcome, which comes to mind since so many diabetics are also having weight issues. How can we address this issue before conception?
1: I think it's a very difficult issue. I think it's a difficult issue in general. But I think that sometimes a very big motivator for women is a successful pregnancy. And so times to address weight reduction before pregnancy may relate to successive pregnancy outcomes. So it's, it's, you're more at risk for hypertension, for preeclampsia, for gestational diabetes, and for difficult deliveries if you're obese than if you're not. And so it may be a big motivator.
2: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Are there any other medical conditions that you think are particularly suited to preconception education?
1: I think that hypertension is a, is a good one because... ACE inhibitors are a very common antihypertensive, and they are a teratogen, and so they need to be discontinued at the diagnosis of pregnancy, not really before that. And so if we can see patients with hypertension before that, they'll know that. I think anybody who's on anticoagulants, Coumadin in particular, it's a teratogen across the placenta. So that will be people with maybe with prosthetic heart valves or with chronic clotting conditions. I think those are both important with respect to drug management. And then the others are really, lupus is a good example. If your lupus is in control, if you're not in a flare at the time of conception, you're much more likely to do better. That's really true for most diseases.
2: Mm -hmm. If they're under control before you get pregnant. It's interesting, too. I think as a timeline, we try to encourage patients to be in good control for at least about three months in advance to make sure they really are.
1: So we're not making dramatic alterations in treatment very early in pregnancy.
2: The other piece of this preconception health is that a lot of these things can also affect their fertility, let alone the maternal health during pregnancy. And is there anything particular that comes to mind with that?
1: With fertility per se, mostly patients with autoimmune disease who may have premature ovarian failure or patients who've been treated with autoimmune drugs may have effects on fertility. Obesity and the metabolic syndrome clearly affect fertility. We've seen a fair number of patients put on um, metformin for treatment of polycystic ovaries that then get pregnant because they, for years, were infertile and didn't know that they would return to ovulatory cycles with treatment. And so I think those are the major fertility effects, and severe renal disease affects fertility as well.
2: What do you think about other endocrine options, things like thyroid disease? Is that something that we have to be concerned about?
1: Thyroid disease is a great one to consider. We're actually doing a study right now for hypothyroid pregnant patients, but we used to think that... Patients who were hypothyroid didn't ovulate as commonly, and if they did, then their pregnancy was just fine. There was not really a consideration. It turns out we really do need to increase our dose of thyroid replacement in hypothyroid patients probably by about a third very early in pregnancy. And that we do know now that there's a slight fall off in IQ in neonates of infants of patients who had undertreated hypothyroidism, so we like to get that early and treat it. And those are patients who are likely to be at risk for postpartum thyroiditis,
2: too. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a discussion on physiological changes of medical diseases in pregnancy on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo, and I'm speaking today with Dr. Karen Rosine-Montella, author of Medical Care of the Pregnant Patient. So Dr. Racine Matella, I think we were talking a bit about things that we could fine-tune before pregnancy, but I also want to talk a little bit about the challenges between medical professionals, particularly internists and OBGYNs, in caring for patients with medications and possibly diagnostic testing that we're very reluctant to do on a pregnant patient. So for example, if someone needs to have a CAT scan or an MRI when they're pregnant to evaluate a medical problem, there is always the frustrating struggle with radiology to get this done
1: such an extraordinarily good question, it's one of our biggest challenges, and we spend an inordinate amount of time talking to our radiology department, and each year when the new residents come, we go and meet with all of the radiologists, all of the people who work in MR and CT, and talk about the data in pregnancy and the risk of not doing a test. If you look at the UK Confidential Inquiry data, most of the patients who died from pulmonary emboli were not diagnosed, and they were not diagnosed because of a fear of the radiologic procedure. And the radiation exposure from those diagnostic tests is really very minimal and much, much less than the risk of not diagnosing the I had a patient with a significant lymphoma with a recurrence that I couldn't get imaging on. So access to care for pregnant patients is a very interesting different kind of access in that way. And I think it's a lot of education. It's a lot of working with your colleagues. It's a lot of not judging each other and understanding people's fears and their intent to do good, not really. They're just being obstructive.
2: Why do you think the medical community is filled with such trepidation when it's faced with these obstetrical situations where testing is required?
1: I think internists get absolutely no exposure to pregnant patients in training, which we're trying very hard to change. But you have a whole group of medical doctors who are likely to see patients with medical illness when they're pregnant who've not really been exposed to pregnancy. And so they're uncomfortable and they're very afraid. I mean, I think that they're so afraid of teratogenicity and I think it's a litigious society as well. I think it's both, although we see it in other societies as well. And so that's not the only answer.
2: I like to think that there's a certain concern about safety, obviously, for everyone, for the patient and for the infant, and, and certainly there being careful in the society we are in is very, very true. You know, in the book, you comment that maternal death is poorly tolerated by the fetus. And I just was tickled by this comment because it's so true that if we don't do testing and give medication, that the most ultimate things that happen to the mother obviously affect the fetus. But most situations are not that extreme. And to try to educate the people around us, do you really think it's a lack of research that causes some of the misinformation, or is it really just fear?
1: both, but I think it's more fear and then more just lack of education. I mean, really, I, I spend a lot of time asking people, let me ask you something. If you had a patient with a seizure disorder who walked in your office and they weren't pregnant, would you tell them, well, gee, I think we'll wait nine months and treat you? And of course you would not. And so let's think clearly about that. And we talk about that fetal acidosis in response to a maternal seizure is not a good thing. And we talk about the same thing for asthma. Asthma medications are very, very safe. And yet the biggest reason for asthma exacerbations during pregnancy is people stop their meds because they're afraid or someone made them afraid.
2: The use of prescription medications in pregnancy is often a discussion of some conundrum between physicians and patients and other physicians. I think mostly because the long term risks for the fetus are unclear in a lot of circumstances.
1: I think it's a reason why we always err on the side of using older drugs. I mean Aldomet or Alpha Methadolpa is a good example of it. That's an antihypertensive that really probably nobody's using anymore. But it's used during pregnancy because there's six-year follow-up on kids who've been exposed to it with no adverse effects. And so I think it is a time to shut our doors to brand new drugs.
2: Well, thank you to Dr. Karen Rosine Montella, who has been our guest, and we've been discussing information that's in her book, Medical Care of the Pregnant Patient, a well-organized evidence-based resource that I think can easily be used by both obstetrician and internal medical staff in the care of their pregnant patients for pre-existing or newly developed medical disease. I'm Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit ReachMD.com. And for comments or questions, please call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Advances in Women's Health, sponsored in part by Eli Lilly, with your host, Dr. Lisa Mazzullo. For more details on the interviews and conversations in this week's show or to download the segment, please go to ReachMD.com forward slash women's health.